Okay, that's uh, what they call a golden oldie. And uh, maybe that's a way to remind you that we're preaching through Ephesians chapter five. And this is really the third message out of the section on sex and uh, marriage. And so if you didn't listen to the two sermons before, it'd be helpful if you went back and, and gave them a look. Also, I'm old. And so if I wear these glasses, I can see you out there. And if I wear these glasses, I can see my notes, but I don't know if you're goofing off. So just don't goof off, okay? And listen to the sermon and um, let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for your word. And Lord God, I pray that your word would penetrate us this morning and impregnate us with life and that you would be glorified in us. Lord Jesus, as we talk about these things, I'm very aware that your word encounters people in different places. And so some are coming from a very dark and painful history. Some are coming from a place of great hope and Lord's satisfaction. Lord, some are just wondering if they'll ever experience anything in this department. 
Lord Jesus, would you minister your word to all of us through the power of your spirit? And would you help us to trust that you are good? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. In 1978, when I was just 16 years old, I experienced some heartache. And so my parents took me to the doctor and and they they x-rayed my chest. And they discovered that my heart was actually a, a trophy room. You know, like the kind that a big game hunter has, a trophy room. And I was sitting in the middle of the trophy room in a big stuffed leather chair, smoking a pipe and humming the 007 theme song. (laughs) Above the mantle in the trophy room was the stuffed head of Erin McGinley. Now, I had taken her to see my horse in ninth grade, and as we were walking along, she, she held my hand. She was one of my trophies. Lisa Zezelak was a cheerleader. She had a cheerleader uniform, and it was declared at school that we were going together, even though we never went anyplace. She had been made into an an end table. That little skirt made a cute little apron around the end table. Becky Tucker was in the corner like a stuffed bear uh, standing there ready to kiss me because, you see, I had kissed Becky Tucker for 30 minutes straight. I know that because I was watching the bank clock across the street so I could, so I could tell my friends. Aaron, Lisa, Becky, several others were my trophies. I, I mean, I had won their affections. I had conquered their hearts. Now, I call myself a Christian, so I don't mean that I had sex with them, but, but just that they fell for me. But now this is the really weird thing. As soon as they'd fallen for me, they seemed less attractive to me. Perhaps because they fell for me. It's like they were fruit, and, and I would see the fruit on the tree, see that they were good and a delight to the eye and to be desired to make one wise and good and complete, but as soon as I picked the fruit, it died. You know, as soon as a big game hunter bags his trophy, it's dead. As soon as he takes a life, it's no longer life but death. Stuffed, mounted, standing in the corner of his trophy room. So I'd pursue a girl until I thought I had a girl. And then I'd lose interest in the girl and call it off. Now sometimes the the girl would call it off and I'd say, well, that was a mutual calling off. But but then I really, really didn't want uh, to call it off because she had already called it off, but I still kept her trophy in my trophy room because she fell for me at least a bit. And after all, I, you know, I kind of did call it off. My trophies. Now understand, I knew about these girls, but I didn't know any of these girls. You can't know a trophy because it's dead. So I thought I, I, I captured love, but I didn't know love. Aaron, Lisa, Becky, Anne, Sally, Jesus. Like I said, I called myself a, a, a Christian. So I had Jesus hanging on the wall in my trophy room next to Aaron over the mantle. I didn't know them, and and I was terrified to let them know me. I projected an image of what I hoped was me. Easy-going, confident athlete on the swim team. 
But I remember praying almost every night that this girl that I was currently dating would never come to us with me. Because <laughs> she'd see me lose, naked of all glory, covered only in a speedo and white flabby flesh. Well, you see, I wasn't real. And none of my trophies were real. But this girl I was dating, oh, wow, I mean, just wow. Talk about a hot 100 pounds of flesh. Chantilly lace and a pretty face, a ponytail hanging down, a jiggling walk and a jiggling talk. Made my world go round, round, round. She was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Until, of course, I thought I had conquered her heart. And then the song would just stop. And I'd say, let's take it slow. And she'd say, okay, okay, we will take it slow. And, and then all of a sudden the song would start again. And I'd start hunting again. And, and I'd say, you know, let's maybe go out again. No wonder people play hard to get. We all want to get but no one can afford to be gotten. We all want love, but when we think we have love, we crucify love. Well, anyway, this one spring night back in 1978, I remember I said, let's call it off. And Susan Coleman said, okay, I really think we should call it off. And I really hurt her. And I really scared me. Because I remember thinking to myself, you know, maybe I can't love. Maybe I, Peter Hyatt, can never be married. Because if I ever bagged a wife, I couldn't love that wife. Once I took the good, it would no longer be the good. Once I captured love, I could no longer love. You know, my trophy room felt safe but safe as hell. My trophy room was all about me and the me was false and I was trapped in that room called me. I was alone and that would explain the heartache. Surrounded by love, I was alone. Remember the first thing that God declared not good? It was before the fall. Isn't that something? The one thing declared not good before the fall. And also then before the seventh day when everything, everything, everything is good. It's not good and Adam doesn't know it's not good. Why? Because he doesn't know the good. First thing God declares not good is Adam. Alone. Adam, which means man, as, as in mankind, Adam was alone in the presence of God who is love. And so God says, you remember, he says, I will make a helper fit for Adam. So God divides Adam into male and female. He took 100 pounds of clay. In Hebrew, the word is Adamah. But he didn't take this clay from the ground. He took this Adamah from Adam. Eve is made of Adam's bleeding side. Like we are made of Christ's bleeding side, body broken, bloodshed on a tree. Well, anyway, God divides Adam into male and female, but 
That's not the, the substance, that's the sign. So ultimately the thing missing for Adam isn't Eve. And ultimately the thing missing for Eve isn't Adam. Adam and Eve's helper isn't Adam and Eve, but God, who is love. What's missing is faith in love, a capacity for love. And so God makes himself fit on a tree called a cross. When we preached on that three weeks ago, remember, the helper? We preached on that when we began preaching on this section of scripture, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, Paul writes, be filled with the spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands, ask the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as, as their own bodies. <clears throat> he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Male, female sex marriage refers to Christ and the church. You know, the Old Testament refers to Israel as God's bride who became a harlot. What does harlotry do? It, it turns persons into commodities, doesn't it? Persons into things. Like a trophy hunter turns life in, into trophies hanging on a wall or perhaps hanging on a tree. The New Testament refers to the church as the bride of Christ and Christ as, as our helper, the ultimate Adam. Well, when the helper came, his harlot bride tried to take his life, tried to take the seed, tried to take the headship on a tree. Scripture says that, that Jerusalem, the bride, crucified Jesus out of envy. Remember we talked about that. She had Jesus' envy. She envied his potency, his penetrating presence, his life. She wanted seed, and he is the promised seed. She saw the head, the life, the seed, the good, but didn't know the good, just envied the good. So she tried to take his life, but it didn't work. You know, and this is interesting, you can think about this on your own, but, but a woman can't really take a man's seed against his will. 
can't truly rape a man, is maybe how, how you'd say it. it. It just doesn't work that way. That would be like trying to make yourself fruitful by picking fruit and eating the fruit. Right, there's seed in the fruit, but that's not how the seed is implanted in the soil. God said, be fruitful, and that, now, that's interesting, that's his first command, be fruitful and multiply, but how does that happen, Eve? Can you make yourself good by picking the good and consuming the good? Can you make yourself loving by taking love and hanging it on the wall in, in, in your trophy room? In other words, can you make yourself in God's image by taking the knowledge of good and evil, the law, and then fulfilling the law in the power of your own flesh? Well, anyway, like I was saying, the helper came and his harlot bride took his life on the tree and the life died and she died. And that's the very definition of sin. Sin is taking life, which is taking love. Grace is giving life. Grace is sacrificial love. At the tree, we took God's life, but in the very place we took his life, he gave his life, revealing that he is our helper. And the trophy hunter is dead. The harlot bride is dead. Last time I pointed out that we are all female and that we are all our Lord's bride. And in 1978, I was the harlot bride. I was taking love to possess love and only killing love. We're all female. And then we also said this last time, it's fascinating, but we're also all male in that Christ makes us his body. And in 1978, I crucified his body. Named Susan and she let me. It was an evening sometime around Easter. I remember that in the morning I drove back over to her house. Why did I drove over to her house? Because the song started again. Chantilly lace and a pretty face, a ponytail hanging down. I drove over to her house and I went up and knocked on the door and her mom answered the door and she said, Peter, Susan's not here. She, she went for a walk. It was uh, Kettering Park. That's where she went for a walk. So I remember I drove the car down to Kettering Park. I parked in, in the parking lot. It was this gray and rainy day. She didn't see me, but I saw her walking in the rain, feeding the ducks, weeping. She didn't see me, but I saw her. I just watched her for a long time. Her, her heart was naked and exposed and... I could tell it was bleeding and I stared at her and just was captivated by something. Not Chantilly lace and a pretty face, but love, bleeding for me. A heart that had allowed itself to be crucified by me, for me. And it was then that the thing I sought to possess began to possess me. It was like I had bagged a trophy, put the trophy in my trophy room, and then the trophy had come to life and was trying to bag me. The hunter became the hunted. I was ambushed 
by love. And what I sought to possess, possess me all the way to the altar upon which I was sacrificed as my pastor father said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You know, it was in the garden that our father said, a man shall leave and cleave and the two shall become one flesh. I, I had tried to capture love and love captured me. But now listen very closely. Love is not content to just capture me. Love seeks to transform me, even impregnate me, even become incarnate in me. Love seeks to make me its very own body. Therefore, a man shall leave and cleave and the two shall become one flesh. So, so on May 28, 1983, Susan and I recited vows and entered into a covenant. You know, the Bible refers to marriage as a covenant. And when people form a covenant, they take vows. And marriage vows are a promise, a promise to love. So whenever I perform a wedding ceremony, I ask, I ask the question of the bride and groom, what is love? Most people think love is a hormone or a feeling. Some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger, you will meet a stranger across a crowded room, and suddenly you'll know. What will you know? You'll know that you have hormones, right? <laughs> so we now have a society of people looking across crowded rooms and analyzing their hormones. Now King Cole said, love is a many splendored thing. It's the April rose that only grows in the early spring. But once plucked, an April rose only lasts about as long as your standard honeymoon. Once on a high and windy hill, two lovers kissed in the morning mist and the world stood still. You can't vow that. I mean, you can't vow to always smell roses uh, whenever your bride walks into the room. You can't vow that the world will stand still whenever you are kissed in the morning mist by your groom. And isn't that the very reason that we take vows? I mean, why else would you take the vow? Isn't it the very reason we take vows? Because our passion is unreliable. So maybe love is more than passion or a feeling. Maybe love is a decision, and that's why we take vows and make covenants. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for, for love or steadfast love is chesed. I remember my seminary professor always saying, chesed is covenant love. And in ancient times, when people would form a covenant, this is what they do. They take like an animal or several animals, take the animal, they cut it in half, lay the pieces on the ground, and then they would walk between the pieces of the animals, reciting the terms of the covenant and saying something like, may it be done unto me as it was done unto this animal if I break the terms of this covenant. And marriage is a covenant. And divorce is breaking covenant. And if you've ever been through a divorce, you know it feels less like just annulling some kind of legal document ratified by the state down at the county building and, and more like taking a body, a, a, a living body, one flesh, and ripping it in two. And God made a covenant. 
and we broke it. Never forget that the picture of love and your faith is not an April rose or an enchanted evening or chantilly lace and a pretty face. Our picture of love is God in flesh hanging naked, drenched in his own blood, hanging naked, drenched in his own blood, impaled upon a tree because of his covenant love for each one of us, his harlot bride. His blood is shed to atone for all the ways that we have already broken covenant with him. His body is broken to form a new and eternal covenant for each one of us. You see, when you vow yourself to fall in people, you can get crucified. And when you let them, it's called forgiveness. May 28th, 1983, Peter Hyatt, the trophy hunter, entered into a covenant and took vows with no escape clause other than death. Now, any businessman will tell you that's insanity. You don't enter into a covenant with no escape clause other than death. That's crazy. That's insane. You know, years ago, uh, in, in West Virginia, I, I think I heard this on the Rush Limbaugh show something years ago, that they were actually considering putting warning labels on marriage licenses. Can you believe that? I thought, what a brilliant idea. They should do that. I, and, and I don't know that they ever did, so I did. I came up with a marriage uh, uh, a wedding ceremony. I came up with a warning label, and in every ceremony, I, I tape it right to the chest of the groom uh, that, that, uh, that, of whom I'm performing the ceremony. This is the, this is the warning label. Warning, marriage is a covenant ratified by God. The Surgeon General has determined that at the time of your wedding ceremony, there are certain hormones in the bloodstream which cause dizziness and poor perception. These hormones commonly subside on your honeymoon. Use extreme caution. The person that you're about to marry is a reprobate. Smack, I put it right there so she doesn't miss it. Wide-eyed, enchanted couples. They'll look at me as if to say, well, what about the hundred pounds of clay and the chantilly lace and the pretty face and, you know, male and female and Christ, it refers to Christ and the church. I mean, what about God's plan? You said this was God's plan. Yes. It is God's plan. Just like Jesus Christ and him crucified is God's plan. Is he crazy? Yes. He is crazy with love for you. And yes, God does have a plan for you. God's plan for you is to kill that prideful, self-centered, lonely old trophy hunter that is you and transform you into his own image. And who is he? He is the crazy bridegroom hanging on a cross because he vowed himself unconditionally to us his unfaithful harlot bride. He is the perfect image of the invisible God. And God said it right there in Genesis chapter one. So if you think, oh, there's some kind of secret agenda that he never let us in on. No, he said it right there in Genesis chapter one. Let us make Adam in our own image. God's agenda is to make you look like him. And so God makes us Male and female. He fashions 100 pounds of clay, chantilly lace, and a pretty face. He makes estrogen. Do you know that? He makes estrogen. He makes testosterone. He makes those burning desires within you. And why does he do it? 
to set an ambush. If you're married, let me tell you, God Almighty has used testosterone and estrogen, chantilly lace, and a pretty face to lure you into an unconditional covenant with one other sinner and no escape cause except death. So that, so that, so that you'd be forced to love, even when it hurts. So that you'd learn to forgive, even as you've been forgiven. So that you'd begin to look like Jesus. And so, guys, if your bride publicly humiliates you, strips you naked, whips you, nails you to a tree, stands back to watch you die, it doesn't mean that your marriage is not working. <laughs> right? What does that mean? It means that it's beginning to work because you're beginning to look a lot like him. <laughs> marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified. People divorce because of incompatibility. Who's compatible with the cross? People get divorced because they say it's not working. But maybe that's precisely when, when, when it is working. You know, Christ was made fit for you. He was made compatible to you on a cross. Maybe we are made compatible to each other in a very similar sort of way. Well, anyway, love isn't just a feeling, it's a vow. And the vow creates a feeling, creates passion, it makes us real. Marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified. With just 100 pounds of clay, got me crucified. <laughs> Marriage is God's sneaky way to get a person crucified, but, Crucifixion is God's sneaky way to give you a new life. Crucifixion is God's sneaky way to make you real. What is real? Asked the rabbit and the velveteen rabbit. You know, he was a stuffed rabbit, like a trophy in a trophy hunter's trophy room. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day as they were lying side by side near the nursery fender just before Nana came in to tidy up the room? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time. Not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Sometimes, said the skin horse for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked? Like, like, is, it, is it like being wound up? Or, 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 or does it happen bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. And generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. People that don't know the good. And now I imagine that some of you are wrestling with a whole bunch of shame because maybe you've been through a divorce.
Maybe you didn't want it. Maybe you did want it. Maybe God didn't want it. Maybe he did want it. You know, God gave Israel a certificate of divorce, but he never forsook her. And he bought her back with his own blood. So if your situation is irreversible, please let it go and believe that Jesus really does make all things new. But, but if God is, is giving you an opportunity to look like Jesus, I would just suggest that you avail yourself of the opportunity. It's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that you don't get in exalted heavenly glory. Or maybe you feel shame because you've been through a divorce. Maybe you feel shame because you're single, like Paul, who is writing this or like Mary of Magdalene, but, but you see, you're not single. Isaiah 54, this is the point. Your maker is your husband. So this is about you. He was crucified for you. He asked you to pick up your cross for him. Or maybe you feel shame because you realize that you, do just not, you just don't have the strength to fulfill a vow of love. And I certainly, certainly, certainly hope you see you don't. A vow to love constitutes a law about love. The law describes love, but it isn't love. And if I think I can make myself love, I've fallen to the lie of the snake in the garden. I've become the harlot bride trying to take love to make myself love. I've become the trophy hunter killing love trying to possess love. I'm old Adam and old Eve taking fruit trying to make myself fruitful. You see, I can't make myself love. I can't make love. But love is making me. Love is a feeling, but not just a feeling. And love is a vow, but not a vow I can make. God is love. And so real love, real, real, real love is, is God. And God is making me and he's using my marriage, he's using your marriage to do it. I can only love, I can only love by trusting that I am loved. And when I receive that love, I'm impregnated with that love and become an incarnation of love called the body of Christ. And so you see, it's not just a duty, but a privilege that God would love my bride through me and a privilege that God might love his bride through me. And so if you've been feeling left out as I've preached this morning, thinking, gosh, I have no bride to love. I, I have no bride to suffer for. I have no bride to bear a cross for. Well, just look around you. You're surrounded by the bride of Christ. So believe Christ's love and you'll become his body of love, loving his bride. Christ will use you to sanctify his bride by the washing of water with the word. He'll use you to proclaim the gospel. And, and what's the gospel? What's the truth that we don't love, but the proclamation that we will love for our maker is love. 
You, you see, when we proclaim the word, we tell the harlot that she's actually the bride. We tell her who she truly is. Washed clean, covered in his righteousness, washed in the word, by the word. She can't make herself righteous. She can't make herself lovable or lovely. Love makes her lovely. So we can't make love. But love makes us. Let me put it this way. It's his passion that makes us. It's his covenant that creates us. God is love, and I tried to capture love, and love captured me. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't Susan. I mean, she didn't even see me that day when she fed the ducks in the rain weeping. It, it wasn't Susan. It was love in Susan, God in Susan capturing me. And it wasn't Susan or me that made the covenant. We just get to enact the covenant. I'm not the promise keeper. Christ is the promise keeper. And if I ever do get to die for my bride, it won't be me, but Christ in me. So it won't be a curse, but a blessing, for I'll be participating, participating, sharing in the very passions of the Christ. And you see, that's headship. Behold the man, said Pilate, to the harlot bride, as he pointed at Jesus, drenched in his own blood. Headship. Headship is being the first to sacrifice in love. Now Susan can testify. She's back there. She probably will gladly testify that I have a very, very long way to go in that department. But the trophy hunter is dying. Like you sang to me, I'm, I'm going to be 52 years old tomorrow. I have less testosterone than I did when I was 16. My bride has less estrogen than she did when she was 16. Our bodies are dying, but God is making us real. And soon we'll have new bodies, but our souls will no longer be false, but true. And even now, it's the Holy Spirit. You know, Holy Spirit is a, a female noun in the Old Testament. Even now, the Holy Spirit in Susan, it's the Holy Spirit in Susan that invites the bridegroom. And it's Christ in me, the bridegroom in me, that impregnates the bride with life. It's love, and God is love. I try to capture love, and love captures me. Love makes me in his own image. Imagine that. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College. You know what a Bible college is? It's a place where people go to take the good in order to make themselves good. And it was a dream come true for Robertson to be the president. His office must have been like his trophy room, but then tragedy struck. His bride Muriel came down with Alzheimer's disease. Chantilly lace and a pretty face, a ponytail, Hanging down. I mean, that must have been what attracted Robertson to Muriel 40 years before. But now Muriel couldn't even remember who Robertson was or who she was. But he remembered. He knew. 
His friends advised him not to neglect his calling, but Robertson believed that the covenant was his calling, so he resigned from his position as president to care for Muriel, to feed Muriel, to bathe Muriel, to sanctify Muriel by the washing of water with the word. Muriel didn't know who she was, but Robertson knew who she was, and he told her who she was. She was his bride. He recorded his experiences in one of my favorite little books called A Promise Kept. One day, a former student asked him, do you miss being president? McQuilkin writes this, I'd never thought about it, but that night I reflected on his question. Finally, I turned to the Lord, Father, it's okay, I I like this assignment and I have no regrets, but something has occurred to me. If the coach puts a man on the bench, he must not want him in the game. You needn't tell me, of course, but if you'd like to let me in on the secret, I'd like to know, why don't you need me in the game? Robertson didn't sleep well. He woke considering uh, that puzzle. On the morning walk around, around the block, he uh, held Muriel's hand like usual to help her along as uh, she stumbled. As they were making their way around the, blo- the block, a, a familiar figure walked up, kind of stumbled up behind them, and then he walked out in the street and he walked back onto the sidewalk and he turned around, he looked him up and down, and then he said, I like it, that's good. I like it, I like it, I like it a lot. It's good. Then he turned away, stumbled down the street, mumbling, I like it, it's good. Robertson didn't know quite what to think of that. I just kind of laughed at that, uh, that man. He was, he was a drunk that lived in their neighborhood. Laughed at what he, I like it, it it's good. As they walked back to the house, he, he, he just, that phrase kept running through his mind. He writes that it was when they sat down in the garden that he suddenly realized that God had answered his prayer. I like it. It's good. See, Robertson wasn't on the bench. He was at the very pinnacle of God's game. He didn't win a trophy. He had become God's trophy, and God's trophies are not things. They're not commodities. They're persons, real persons in the image of God. I like it. It's good. It's the good. Love is the good. Do you know that? So Robertson tried to capture the good, and the good captured Robertson and shaped Robertson in his own image. Love completes Adam in God's image. Love is Adam's helper. Love creates faith. Did you get that? It's not you. Love creates faith in Adam. And faith in love is what was missing on the sixth day in Adam. One day, Robertson and Muriel were stuck at the airport in Atlanta because their flight was delayed. As they uh, sat in the, in the lounge, uh, 
Robertson writes that they sat across from this attractive young female executive type who was working on her computer. And as usual, Muriel was creating quite a commotion, quite a commotion. And then this executive said something that Robertson couldn't quite hear. And he assumed that he had just mumbled some sort of protest. She had mumbled some sort of protest over the noise that Muriel was making. Pardon, he asked. She looked up and she said, oh, Oh, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man to love me like that? Maybe you're asking the same question. Don't you see, we're all asking the same question. Will I ever find a man to love me like that? a helper. So listen closely. You do have a man that loves you like that. And he loves you better than that. And so he took the bread and he broke it. Saying, this is my body given to you. And he he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for you. Drink of it. Drink of it, all of you. The covenant. Do you understand? Marriage is God's sneaky way to get himself crucified. I mean, he knew what he was doing when he cut that covenant with old Noah on Mount Ararat. He knew what he was doing when he called Abraham into the darkness on the side of Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Zion and said, Abraham, just sit here, sit here and watch as he, as he tore the animals in, in half and the fire walked between the pieces and he confirmed the covenant. He knew what he was doing when he called Moses up onto Mount Sinai and, and dictated the sacrificial system and the terms of the covenant, instituting the covenant. And he knew what he was doing when he broke the bread and he poured the wine. And at the end of the day, he cried, it is finished. As he fulfilled the covenant, hanging on a tree. He wanted Adam to capture him. So he could capture Adam's heart and create Adam in his own image. He wanted his harlot bride to crucify him. So he could reveal his love to her and create faith in her. For faith in love is what was missing. Marriage is God's sneaky way to get himself crucified. In other words, the covenant of God creates the passion of the Christ and the passion of the Christ creates faith in you. An eternal seed in you an imperishable seed in you that will grow. Bride of Christ, may you have faith in his love. He is love and he is your husband. So this morning,
come to the table, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and place it in the soil of your heart. It's the seed. And you didn't take it. He forgave it. And now you take it. It's grace. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and live. Your love heals every disease. Your love fills my every need. Your love is everything to me. Your love is everything. Your love heals every disease. Your love fills my every need. Your love is everything to me. Your love is everything. And so sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.